Why has the plight of the Rohingya been ignored? Hundreds of thousands of people fled a military crackdown in Myanmar five years ago. They've been refugees in Bangladesh ever since, with no hope of returning home. So what future do they have? I'm Tom McRae, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests now. In London, we have Chor Wynn, Executive Director at the Burma Human Rights Network. In Vancouver, Yasmin Ullah, a Rohingya human rights activist. And in Cape Elizabeth, Maine in the US, Tom Andrews, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Myanmar. A warm welcome to each of you. Thank you very much for being on the uh, programme today. Yasmin, I want to start with you. Five years on... Does it feel like anything has changed or have things simply gotten worse? Unfortunately, things have gone worse. Um, I think the the segment by uh, Tanweer was very, very um, captivating and, and very much true to what the sentiment is like on the ground. Um, people are extremely worried that they're their situation's not going to ever get better. Um, neither would it get better in Rakhine State due to the junta's doing, and neither would it get better in the camps um, where restrictions are increasing in order to push people to go back home in an unsafe conditions. And so our communities are basically stuck in the um, in a limbo and without any choices of our own, our agency completely um, ignored and our skills completely, you know, really just neglected and not incorporated in the plans and management of the camps. Chua, do you think that uh, there's a feeling of helplessness among the population at the moment? As you see, the, the Rohingya population in, in, in the camp, they are genocide survivors, they are traumatised people. And and then beside they have uh, lots of pressure uh, you know social pressures and, and uh, authorities uh, for, for pressure from the authorities local authorities uh, and also local communities they are surrounded by the uh, lots of problems and difficulties and, and and this is the layers of failures by the international community including un and that's the result we have today mm. um, tom we've heard and seen quite a lot uh, about the you know conditions in the refugee camps, but obviously there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Rohingya still in Myanmar. What is it like for them there, and uh, has it just gotten worse since uh, the military took power? Well, Tom, that's a very good question, and yes, things are getting unfortunately worse uh, inside of Myanmar. There are over 600,000 Rohingya living in Rakhine State right now. I spoke with uh, some of them as recently as yesterday, and I can tell you from my conversations Things are bad and they're getting worse. Uh, there's uh, no respect whatsoever for human rights. Conditions are, are horrible in terms of the bigotry and discrimination that they face. Uh, restrictions in movement are even greater than ever before. 130,000, more than 130,000, are living in what are uh, called IDP camps. They're really concentration camps, if you will, open air prisons. I've been there. And, you know, five years ago when I was doing a fact finding mission before I became special rapporteur, I was meeting with people there, and one man, I'll, I'll never forget him, he said, look, if the world won't help us, then bomb us, bomb the camps, because it would be better for me and my family to die than it, it, than it would be to continue to live in these conditions. This is five years ago. So the fact is, is that this grim milestone that we have marked, the fifth anniversary, 
was not the beginning of the living hell that have been that Rohingya men, women, and children have been suffering. Uh, it's been going on for some time, and it continues to go on in the current state of Myanmar, even as we speak. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the, uh, I guess, maybe the, the lack of response from the international community shortly. But just while we're, we're speaking about these, these camps and the, the, the plight of the people within them, education in the last few months has been a massive issue. Yasmin, can you tell us a little bit about what has changed in the last five or six months in terms of educating young people in Cox's Bazaar? Yeah, um, I know for a fact that our community has done a lot of work to uplift ourselves. And a lot of these uh, informal schools have been run mainly by donations within the community. And, you know, however much we can muster and, and get together, we actually send back home. But we actually have, have been seeing the dwindling um, ability to actually transfer the funds inside Cox's Bazaar to the people that we're working with. On top of that, many different, you know, uh, uh, access that we used to have are, are actually closed down. Um, and then we find out that informal schools are, are actually uh, no longer allowed or permitted. Um, it was sort of ignored, neglected for a very long time that we did this, as, as long as it doesn't mimic any curriculum that uh, can, be, can work um, in the Bangladeshi curriculum. And now we just have a situation where authorities of humanitarian organizations are the ones that actually tip off um, Bangladeshi authorities to actually come and close down these these uh, informal schools and now the, the people are uh, in in the camps are actually really feeling helpless because they they don't know where to send their uh, their children the informal schools that we have were by no means you know uh, helpful or or not not necessarily helpful but but more so that it was not sufficient in any sense but it was enough to actually get people to to see the prospect to to actually hope for the future but in this case when all the schools are closed down and in connection to that we have rallies of people being told um, to actually say that they want to go back home regardless of the situation there is connection there where education is not no longer accessible and here we have a group of people saying that they're going to go home regardless of how the conditions might be. Mm. It's just mind boggling how things are developing and, and really worsening at this point. Yeah, Chua, I, I see you nodding your head along to those statements there. With half of uh, the, these camps made up of, of children, what does a lack of education on such a large scale mean to the future of these people? You know, are you concerned that... Um, this is, there's going to be a lost generation created through this. Yeah, first of all, we would like to thank to Bangladesh for saving the life of the Rohingya people, but not allowing them for the education is killing their souls. Look at that population, 52% of the population is the young people, those who are school age, and they're not allowed to go to schools and they don't have any, they're not, even the young, young uh, uh, Rohingya youth, you see that the way they have training, they're giving the education to the children, it is very remarkable and really salute them, you know, the way they have come stand up for the community, but then also uh, prohibited by the Bangladesh government. And from the human rights perspective, it is a crime. You are not allowing young generation to edu for education. And that means you are destroying the community for their future in a long term damage that that's going to cause. 
and and bangladesh will be the first country who will going to face the problem because they are there they are there now mm. practically they are there now and as long as the burmese military or government or any uh, not a opportunity to have to, to repatriation they will be there forever you know bangladesh government how many decades they have been struggling for uh, you know diplomatically to send them back to burma it is failed so there must be alternative way but during until they go back they able to go back they are there so they need to stand up on their own the education is the most important and the backbone of the community to stand up on their own so bangladesh government need to consider seriously to allow their schools and not only informal formal schools as well and let the international community also raise this concern with the bangladesh government tom just on the bangladesh government you know, five years ago, I imagine that they never thought that they would still have a million refugees living within their country in these sorts of conditions. Has too much pressure and responsibility put on, been put on that one country? And what can be done about it at this point in time? Well, there's an enormous amount of pressure on the Bangladesh government. And frankly, there's uh, not enough has been done to support them by the international community. There's no question about it. Now, you think about it. Bangladesh is a developing country. A lot of challenges that they're facing. Of course, the world is, is facing a, a very difficult economic period right now. They have a lot on their plate. Add to that more than one million people uh, who they welcomed uh, into their country to save their lives, literally running for their lives. And now they're faced with an enormous, enormous challenge of, of how to deal with this enormous responsibility without adequate support from the international community. So I think it's really, really important. Now, all the points that, that Yasmin and Charwin are making are, are very, very important. And what Bangladesh needs is obviously voices to be heard from inside those camps. They need to listen and be responsive to those voices. But also they need support and engagement to a much greater degree from the international community. They, they deserve our thanks, but more than that, uh, they deserve our support. Do you feel that, you know, it's, this plight of, of, of a million refugees is getting attention at the moment because it's a significant anniversary five years on? But do you think that a lot of it is uh, a lot of talk uh, but not much action? Um, Yasmin, how, how do you feel that the international community has responded uh, to, to the plight in the last 12 months or so? Do you think it's been forgotten? I unfortunately think that it, it has been. Um, a lot of times there is this curious trend within the international community when it comes to dealing with the Rohingya cause or the Rohingya plight. It, it always acts as if Rohingya issue is separated from the Myanmar issue. And there we have it. We have the, the coup and those widespread violence across the country because the international community has actually ignored the concerns that were voiced uh, by the Rohingya community and leadership. And now we are stuck um, in the middle of the issues of human insecurity and various other restrictive livelihood and you know apartheid-like conditions within Rakhine State um, and the mob, uh, and the penalization of mobility within Rakhine State and across Myanmar uh, for the Rohingya. All of this is basically going back to the issue that is not dealt with well enough or in full force, um, which is impunity. Um, especially the impunity enjoyed by the Myanmar military. There are still many uh, countries that are dealing uh, business and connecting uh, or, or benefiting from the economic incentives and 
basically enabling the Myanmar military junta um, by extension. And that is prioritized over saving our lives, saving people's lives in Myanmar and in Cox's Bazar and Rohingya all across the world. And so we have this issue of, of priority not being, uh, uh, you know, placed on the right issues or on, you know, uh, uh, or, or morally um, seen almost. And so when we when we deal with issues of Rohingya, it's almost like we're actually just trying to kick down the doors that it would never open for us. And we have issues like this where, you know, dwindling funds are, are really an issue for the Bangladeshi government. And again, I may be critical of the management and the plans, um, but it, it needs to be said that Rohingya likelihood of actually repatriating is, is almost impossible at this moment in time until unless the international community really comes together and find resolutions while also holding the Myanmar military accountable in the ways that uproot their, you know, or, or um, eradicate their power or influence over Myanmar. Without that, and without, you know, addressing the issues of, of lack of agency in the camps, without those issues addressed, we really won't be able to get anywhere and the Rohingya situation will get even worse. I see all three of you nodding, uh, you know, seemingly in agreement there. But uh, Kiel, what exactly would you like the international community to do? Is it more money? Is it sanctions? Is it legal action? What, what can they do at this point in time? Well, there are short-term and long-term strategy we need to have. In the short term, we need to build up the Rohingya community with education and the political support. Education is a very grassroots level, young people, you know, to have a uh, formal education and also uh, uh, adults have uh, vocational trainings so they can build up their life. And on the other hand, on the second thing is uh, political support. The Rohingya activists around the world, you know, in, even in Bangladesh camp as well, they need to get support from the international community for a large, stronger movement. That will make sure the repatriation of the community will be decided by the community, by the Rohingya community, when how, when and how will be decided by the Rohingya community, not by the third country or not anyone, and not even by the Burmese military. Because this is the perpetrator, this is the criminal. They are not the partner of peace, not partner of the solution. Should be punished, they should be brought to justice. But it is not gonna happen in the in short term. It will take long time. So we cannot put all our expectation and uh, uh, solution only on the legal matters. Legal matter is extremely important. It is crucial, it's very important. Transitional justice also very important, but we cannot de rely entirely all our movement and action depend on, on the legal matters. As you see, it takes long term, long, uh, several decades and several years, but for that time, a big, large community already has been affected and destroyed by the genocidal actions. How are we going to repair this? How are we going to make sure that this damage will immediately stop and, and turn, turn over? So we need to short. We need a short-term uh, strategy to build up the community, to support the Rohingya people, Rohingya leaders for the political movement, and and all the resources need to be channeled among the Rohingya people because Rohingya people deserve to protect themselves, to decide their future, their their destiny. Mm. So this is international community immediately need to do this. Tom, uh, we've seen recently the International Court of Justice rule that uh, the Gambia's genocide case against Myanmar can now proceed. 
Is that a huge turning point in terms of getting justice for these people? <clears throat> well, Tom, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's an important step forward. <clears throat> There's no question about it. And another important step forward <clears throat> happened yesterday uh, when the UK joined the case. Now we have uh, obviously the Gambia leading the case. We now have the Netherlands, Canada, and now the UK about to join the case. So, so both of those steps, the fact that it's going to proceed as a case and the fact that there's stronger support by uh, nations um, are, are very important steps forward. But we need to do a lot more than, than just that. There is ways in which the international community can coordinate their actions, focus strategically the pressure that needs to be applied, diplomatic pressure, economic pressure, uh, the boycott of weapons. We need to cut the flow of revenue to uh, the military hunter uh, in, in Myanmar. Just think about this. The, the, the person who commanded the troops that committed the genocide five years ago is the one who led this coup in Myanmar last year and is now with his criminal gang, basically, is what you could, how you could uh, accurately conceive of this, a criminal gang holding an entire nation of 54 million people hostage. It is mm. critical and, and literally torturing, killing uh, the, the, the daily life for the people in Myanmar is a living hell and it's getting worse. The international community has failed to adequately respond to this crisis. It's, at, it's, it's, it's failed to focus its energy and attention in a coordinated manner. And I think that needs to be on the agenda of every country who believes uh, in human rights and, and, and justice. Otherwise, this nightmare is just going to get exponentially worse before our very eyes. Yeah. We've got a few minutes left, and I'd like to hear from all three of you on this sort of final point. Uh, Yasmin, we'll start with you. How much hope do you hold out uh, that, that one day the, the people that's, that are stuck in these refugee camps will be able to return home to Myanmar? And what do you think it will take? I think that it would take a lot of efforts, um, and as um, uh, Special Rapporteur uh, Andrews have mentioned, it would need a collaborative, uh, uh, coordinated effort from all sides and, and all parties involved on this to actually uplift the community. And first, they would have to start with recognition that Rohingya survival itself has been a skill set that is immeasurable mm. by any means. And it needs to actually be acknowledged and utilized in, in terms of planning for, for the inevitable, which is however long Rohingya would need to stay within uh, the Cox's Bazaar refugee camps or other settlements around the world, that they should be able to use those, those skills to actually meet issues like food shortage or, you know, teach themselves, um, run educational system, do things that would actually sustain them for the time being until they actually go back to Myanmar and, and hopefully they would go back as a contributing members of the society. So I have a lot of hopes for my community. And I know that we've survived one of the worst things that could ever happen to humans. We would survive for the next however long it takes for us to gain back, you know, the peace and prosperity that we deserve. But it would mm. need the international community to become serious about the issue and actually take efforts and, and actions um, toward that goal. Thank you all so much for joining us. Unfortunately, uh, we are out of time. Um, such a huge issue and so much to cover. But uh, I'd like to thank uh, all three of our guests today, Chua Wynn, Yasmin uh, Ura and Tom Andrews. Thank you so much for being on the programme. 
Well, that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohamed Alachi, Ferdia Carr, Michael Harwood, and Jimmy Gedehoun. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The program was edited by Alexander Ostovich, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Monday. Thank you.